even though this was the most humiliating scandal that the Secret Service could remember, what I was learning behind the curtain from a lot of these agents was that was far more horrifying, which was that the agency had always, you know, had this mode of like, we can do it, sir. But they realized that they really couldn't do it. And they were worried that President Obama was going to get killed on their watch. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Good morning, Ed. Hey, Perry. Good morning. So uh, we have Carol Lenig on today regarding Zero Fail, her latest book, which is actually a hard book to find right now. Uh, it's a top seller. I think it's the number one book in the country. I was happy that mine arrived from the publisher, if I'm allowed to say that publicly. Um, and I tore through it over this Memorial Day weekend. It's terrific. And I'm a great fan of hers. I, I read, um, I've read her at the Washington Post for a long time now. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. Yeah, she's triple smart, and um, she is what you and I like. She is a reporter's reporter. You know, she'll do the the real digging into a story to give you the most objective version of it that is available. She is not an opinion journalist. This is this is straight reporting. So, um, and this topic is really really interesting. So, let's give her an introduction for our audience, and let's get into it. Carol Lenig is an American investigative journalist. She's been a staff writer at the Washington Post since 2000 and was part of a team of national security reporters that won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for reporting which revealed the NSA's expanded spying on Americans. In 2015, Lennox again won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting for her smart, persistent coverage of the Secret Service, its security lapses, and the ways in which the agency neglected its vital task, the protection of the President of the United States. In 2018, Lennig was part of the team that won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting as a contributor to 10 stories on the investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election with the Washington Post. She's a co-writer of the book, A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America with Philip Rucker, and is the author of Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. So Carol Lennig, welcome to the show. We're really excited to talk to you about the, about the book. I want to start by saying, getting something out front at the top of the episode so that in case anybody doesn't listen all the way through, which never happens to us. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's an important point that I, I want, I, I want people to understand because we're going to talk about this fantastic book you wrote what's called zero fail, the rise and fall of the secret service. And there's a lot in it that has gotten Perry and I very animated. There's, there's a lot for American citizens to be concerned with, but I want people to know right from the top that this book couldn't have been written without the cooperation of former and current Secret Service agents that spoke to you because really they want the agency to improve. And the sort of things that we're going to talk about here that are issues of concern, you know, this book is, isn't uh, uh, meant to tear down the agency. It, it's actually a serious piece of reporting that hopefully will lead to reforms that make it stronger. Is that fair? Well, gosh, yeah. I mean, I'm so glad you got it from reading it, that, that that's my purpose. And 
And the people who did talk to me, I mean, good golly, they risked their careers, their professional relationships, their friendships, their assignments. Um, people lost their jobs because they talked to me. I mean, they weren't doing it because they wanted to gossip. They were doing it because they were worried about the agency. They were worried about these chinks in the armor. And I know it's hard for many people who used to work at the service to see these blemishes and have to face these warts. Um, and I know it's really hard for the current leadership to face up to this, but we can't ignore the kind of alarm bell that these dedicated public servants were willing to risk so much to ring. Right. Let me ask you a question. Do you mean that literally that people lost their jobs uh, in think, the agency? I do. I literally was, I literally was, uh, with one of the agents who this weekend to, to visit with him, my husband wanted to meet him and uh, he lost his job because he spoke to me. If you're not authorized to speak on behalf of the agency, you can lose your national security clearance, which means you can't do the job. And it's a way that the secret service keeps, um, its secrets, but it's also a way the secret service silences dissent. Well, let's start with this. This is such a fantastic history lesson because, there was a number of things I learned about events that I thought I knew everything about going back to the Kennedy assassination. And so I want to talk about some of these things. And I, I think a lot, I think people listening will be really fascinated with the, with the stories, but I want to start with who are these people? Who, who are the men and women that work at the secret service? How do you become a secret service agent? If you're a senior in high school or a freshman in college today, and, and you decide this is the career you want to follow what is the path to becoming a secret service agent? You know, it, it, there isn't one single path, but there is a dominant path and it depends on the era. So like if you were an agent who was protecting John F. Kennedy, you likely served in the Korean war or a war before it. And you um, were just coming out as a veteran. Maybe you worked in a sheriff's department before, and then you joined the secret service. They hired a lot of ex-military and also ex-law enforcement. Um, the service today is a little more diverse, um, but it is also overwhelmingly people who used to work in a city police department, a county sheriff's department, maybe a state highway patrol. And um, they are folks who have who are bright lights in their agencies, you know, who who got awards for valor and bravery uh, in their local police force and rose quickly and um, easily distinguished themselves and were chosen for the Secret Service. But it was an agency that um, really came out of, or developed out of a tragedy or a tragic period. And over 36 years, there were three presidents who were assassinated from Lincoln to Garfield to McKinley. And um, it was after that, that the agency, which was out of the Treasury Department because uh, they were hunting down counterfeiters, started to protect the presidency. Talk a little bit about our nation's reluctance and why it took so long for us to try to provide protection to the presidency, <laughs> what our own history was with that, and what we were scared of. Yeah, Perry, I'm so glad you, you focus on this because it's actually interesting how much that reluctance uh, plays a funny role today. So, you know, our, it's maybe you don't, maybe people don't remember, but uh, our fledgling young country was born out of re resisting 
royalty and resisting autocracy and getting away from the king telling you what to do. So presidents really resisted the idea of having a praetorian guard, right, a protective team, because they didn't want anyone to think that they were special or appear special. Of course, they did think they were special, right? But but they were president, but they didn't want the people to feel separated from their leader. Leaders are supposed to be men of the people, all men, by the way, at that time and still to this day. Um, so the idea of protection just was they just had an allergic reaction to that and, and an allergic reaction, if you can believe it, to even offense around the White House. People used to have picnics on the White House grounds back in the 1800s and 1900s. But finally, the country accepted, or rather Congress and the White House accepted, that this couldn't be tolerated anymore because in 1901, the third president was killed at close range, point blank, at, at the equivalent of sort of a World's Fair in Buffalo. That was um, President McKinley. And finally, somebody said, okay, well, it looks like these presidents need protection. And it was the smartest thing they ever did, right? Because it, when you protect the president, you are protecting the continuity of government and you're protecting our democracy. But that, that really flares unhappily later down the road because um, there's that tension still exists in adult, in another form. I think that the thing that sort of animated uh, our, uh, you know, attention so much about this book was the, the, how much it reveals about the culture of the secret service and how problematic that culture has been. Um, you, you, you wrote something really interesting in the epilogue discussing how, you know, the, there's almost the, to use, let me refer to it actually directly. Um, the promotion system, which some people described or resembles La Cosa Nostra, that agents refer to being made when they win their first promotion. And they sort of have this loyalty to this family tree, the guy who brought them in or the person who mentored them. And it's a very, um, it's very fraternity-like and, more ways than one, the, the, the way in which they um, behave off duty or when they're on duty uh, in between, you know, what they need to show up for assignments. So, so talk about some of these things that happened, um, you know, particularly the story of Cartagena. So, you know, this is my introduction essentially to the Secret Service, and it's not a very pleasant one for them or for me. I'm an investigative reporter in 2012. A great colleague of mine who I partner with all the time breaks a story about a dozen Secret Service agents and officers who get shipped back unceremoniously from Colombia, this resort, beautiful resort village town, Cartagena, where the president, President Obama, is supposed to be having a big sort of summit with national leaders about economic agreements between them. And instead, these agents are shipped back because they turned the trip into like a Boys Gone Wild bachelor's weekend uh, in Vegas. And they got smashed. They stayed out all night. They brought prostitutes back to their hotel rooms where some of them had the actual plans of where the Secret Service would protect the president, where he would be, where they would where he would step. They had their guns. So all a big, huge national security no, no. And also morally, uh, you know, not the best conduct for the Secret Service, not the best image. President Obama was pissed off, to say the least. And 
that's how I get introduced to this. I start interviewing a ton of people because my newspaper, the Washington Post, wants to find out how in the world did this happen? And the next question is, does this happen a lot? And we didn't know about it. So what I learned was I met a lot of agents. I met their family members. I met their friends. I met more agents as additional ones started to trust me. And, you know, frankly, even though this was the most humiliating scandal that the Secret Service could remember, what I was learning behind the curtain from a lot of these agents was that was far more horrifying, which was that the agency had always, you know, had this mode of like, we can do it, sir. But they realized that they really couldn't do it. The mission was too big. They hadn't been getting the right equipment. They'd been shortchanged for decades on money, on technology, on the, you know, the tools and the toys that other agencies were getting in spades. And they were worried that President Obama was going to get killed on their watch. And they told me a series of stories about security failures that had been covered up. And as I started to write those stories, people were kind of aghast that these things had happened. And to put some detail on that, you know, so that people understand, when the president goes overseas, an advanced team, a security advanced team of Secret Service goes over, they fly over on military transport with the motorcade, the, 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 the automobiles that the president and, 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 and his entourage will travel in. And they do advance um, uh, uh, security checks on the hotel and the places where the, the, the American delegation is going to stay. And as they are waiting for the president to arrive, they have all this downtime where they essentially <laughs> party. Yeah, and people have asked me, you summarized that really well. Um, people have asked me like, whoa, that's so weird. They go to another country and party. And I, I have to say that what I learned was that Secret Service culture has always been so. Even though the director at the time, Mark Sullivan, testified, this really, you know, Klieg-like investigations held on Capitol Hill, he testified, oh my gosh, I've never seen anything like this before. It's really aberrant. No one condones this kind of behavior. It's really a one-off. There's gambling in the casinos. Um, In fact, these agents said that's happened a lot. Uh, it happened a lot of the, a lot of the time, especially on foreign trips. These trips had become like perks, you know, wheels up, rings off. Not only did they get to party, but maybe if if guys wanted to have other relationships outside of their marriage, they were doing this on these foreign trips. There was a joke that a female agent told me. Um, you know, she, unfortunately, she found out it was true. Um, which is that agents said that uh, relationships across the, a body of water weren't adulterous and they considered the Potomac River a body of water. So there was a lot of this behavior going on. On the other hand, I mean, I learned these agents work their tail off. They work really hard. I'm not excusing adultery and partying at all, but they had gotten to this place where they were killing themselves. They were sacrificing so much of their lives missing birthdays, missing anniversaries, you know, missing literally like being the best man in their friend's wedding because of what they were giving at the office, standing in stairwells all night, that they started to treat these, these trips as, I don't know, like a chance to go crazy. So you are investigating what happens in Cartagena and, um, that is a national embarrassment because right during that time, the U.S. is trying to lecture 
uh, Latin American uh, countries uh, on the problem that they have with sex trafficking. Correct. And our, and our secret services down there engage in this. But that gets you to write the book. And what what fascinated me about the book, and Ed and I have talked about this, I think that we generally would say we're very, very even-keeled people. But there were times in this book where I was heartbroken and times in this book where I was, uh, I found myself surprisingly very angered. And one of the times that I was heartbroken was your detail on the Kennedy assassination. Um, you know, and that's why I asked my, my first question about our reticence for protecting presidents, because when Kennedy is, um, when he goes to Dallas, they have very few agents that are there. Um, I think that, you know, during the Kennedy years, you write that there were 34 detail agents total. total. And I think on that, on that trip, they had like eight or nine agents. They had to swap some people around. So coming out of this reticence, you still go back to what Ed was talking about just now, which is the culture. And yeah. the night before Kennedy's assassinated, can you talk about the story of what the agents are engaged with? And then what I would love for you to talk about is whether or not you think that those agents, if that happened today, would be able to survive their jobs. Hey, yeah. I mean, this one breaks my heart too, because I thought I had learned everything you needed to learn about Kennedy's assassination. And there was more to it. I, I have very mixed emotions though, about what happened because, you know, some people can blame the agents. Um, some people can blame the agency and I don't feel like it's that clear, but I'll get there. So Remember, the 1960s, harder drinking time than today. Um, in fact, drink, blackout drinking was probably not that unusual in the 1960s culture for men, especially. But um, these are agents of the Secret Service. They are, and just as a preface, they are running ragged. Just as you described, by the way, Perry, they're, they've switched out a bunch of senior supervisors. The detail leader isn't even on the trip. He's taking a finally his first break after three and a half years. He's taking one day off and he's not in Dallas with the president. Um, a lot of senior people are exhausted because they've been on the road with this jet setting president. They know they can't keep up, but they are, you know, inflexibly insisting that they can and they're trying to deliver. Uh, there have been warnings, uh, which I learned to my great horror there had been warnings in the weeks before that this white supremacist uh, organizer had been bragging on a, in a covert mission, a policeman who was undercover had learned this, this white supremacist was bragging about how they were trying to kill Kennedy. And they decided that the easiest way to do it was to shoot him from a uh, high building, shooting down at the motorcade which is exactly what happened. Um, so that warning apparently never got passed or, or acted upon by the Secret Service, though five of their field offices and headquarters had this information. Meanwhile, these exhausted guys are landing in Fort Worth, maybe their eighth city in two days on the president's effort to kick off his campaign, a re-election campaign. And... They can't find, they go out looking for food. They land at 11, get the president and the first lady into their room, head out to get sandwiches, can't find sandwiches. 
the club where there were some, it's, it's a press club is closing down and there's no more food. They have a few drinks there before it gets shut down. And then they go to this place called the cellar. And some of them are up until two, three, 5 a.m. in the morning at this club where women don't wear very many clothes. The waitresses are kind of like in lingerie and the drink of choice is spiked with grain alcohol. They don't allegedly serve alcohol, but they do have grain alcohol under the counter and they spike drinks with it. So that's where they spent their evening before they go to Dallas the next morning and um, head to Love Field on Air Force One, which is like a 20, a, maybe a 15 minute plane ride. Secret Service agents, you know, after the president is killed, and I could go into a little detail about this, but we all know what happened that day. The agents didn't react very quickly. They didn't react with hair trigger responses, but they weren't really trained in hair trigger responses the way they are now. They um, all kind of look back behind them when the first shot comes off. And you can see in the Zapruder film and in other still shots that they are not reacting. They are looking. There's only one person who reacts instantaneously, and that's Clint Hill, who was Jackie Kennedy's detail leader. And he clambers onto the back of the limousine where the president did not want the agents to stand because he didn't like them riding so close and making it look like he needed protection from his voters. They had always wanted to ride on the back of the limo, but Kennedy didn't like it and asked for them not to do it. So Clint, here's the shot dashes like crazy. And unfortunately he doesn't make it there in time. He's going to try to throw his body in between the incoming bullets and the president. But the third shot, you know, basically splatters the president's skull. And when he gets onto the back of the limo, Clint finds Mrs. Kennedy trying to collect a piece of her husband's brain off the back of the trunk. Because, you know, in that moment, she's thinking she's going to put him back together. And it's, you know, the most depressing thing you can imagine. And it's traumatizing to the country but it is a gut punch like no other for the service. In that era, Director Rowley, who, by the way, is Secretary of State Tony Blinken's grandfather-in-law, as, as, as like would have it, Director Rowley insists in the investigation that follows the Warren Commission that the agents drinking that night and staying up late wouldn't have made a difference in whether or not Kennedy lived or died, that they couldn't have prevented what happened. They couldn't have prevented him from being killed. There's great dispute and debate about that. If they had reacted the way agents reacted when John Hinckley shot at Reagan, it seems to me that he might have lived. Out of that, um, Director Rowley is a real hero because not only does he stand up for his agents, but he really reforms the entire Secret Service out of that. He does. I mean, in those days, it's a hard to believe a guy who loses a president, one of the most you know beloved presidents, keeps his job because of that dedication that you describe. Today, no director would survive it, and probably the agents wouldn't survive it either. But um, he insists that he's going to remake this agency so it never happens again. Now, what he has going for him in keeping his job is he had been trying to get like 200 more agents before this all unfolded. And Kennedy had resisted him. He had been trying to, you know, reinvigorate the agency before this terrible shooting in an American city. And uh, Congress had also resisted him. So now he was going to get what he wanted. He was going to get this. And, and his rebuilding 
um, and his rigorous professionalization of the training of Secret Service agents is repeatedly vindicated in the decades that follow. And it, it seems as if the agency has always been, in a way, playing catch up and racing against time and threats uh, in terms of trying to get funding for more agents and as their mission expands, because several years later, JFK's brother, Robert Kennedy, is assassinated while running for president, which leads Johnson to order the Secret Service to expand the Secret Service mission to include the protection of candidates, major party candidates running for president. That further strains the, the ability, the, this further strains the, the Secret Service because now there's so many more protectees, at least on a four-year cycle. In 1972, George Wallace, who's running for president, is shot. And then in 75, Ford has two assassination attempts against him in the matter of a month. And of course, Reagan in 81. I mean, this is an amazing window of time in history. That's 18 years from the Kennedy assassination to Reagan, where there are seven assassination attempts, five of which succeed in either wounding or killing the target, you know, the, the Secret Service certainly, I mean, kept, I think, adapting and trying to change and, 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 and grow and, and, and figure out what was, was happening. I mean, that would be the equivalent of us going back to 2003 to the first Bush term and having seven political assassinate or attempts. It's, it's just unheard of. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, sometimes you think this this particular era it could happen again, but yeah, in the late '60s, obviously, is such a fiery season um, of assassinations, so terrifying. Now, John F. Kennedy was the president, was the Secret Service's responsibility. Robert F. Kennedy wasn't, but that that night um, when he is, you know, grievously wounded and they don't think he's going to live, but he hasn't died yet. Lyndon Johnson, then the president, calls up the director, Director Rowley, the person he's resisted over and over again about even increasing his own protection after, you know, his predecessor has been killed. Um, he calls him up and says, okay, put a detail on every single candidate for president. I don't care who it is. I don't care how unimportant they are. Put agents on them right now. And that's what happens. In fact, the guy who ended up leading Reagan's protective detail was the first person assigned to one of those mid, middle of the night details. Um, and I love the story because it's Bob DeProspero is his name and he's kind of a legend. He died a few years ago, um, but I interviewed him for a long time before that and lovely guy. But he said his supervisor called him and said, pack a bag, don't know how long you're going, don't know where you're going, don't know when you'll be back. So pack for that. <laughs> and he was gone until I think from June to November. Part of why I wanted to talk about that period of time where so much happened, you know, I was reading and I was thinking to myself, have we just been lucky? Because I want you to tell the story of Omar Gonzalez and what happened in 2014. I, I remember it in the news. I don't think a lot of people might, but you write an amazing second by second um TikTok, I guess is what they call it in your business on, yeah. on what happened when um, the night this guy jumped the fence at the White House and how far he got. It's really, it's extraordinary that this happened. Thank you, Ed. I mean, so to put it in perspective, um, 
I've just spent, you know, a year of my life meeting a lot of agents and learning what they're worried about, learning about their crazy culture that allowed for multiple versions of Cartagena to happen before uh, the one that I wrote about, learning about that, but also learning about their fears about the chinks in the armor. And I'm like at an anniversary dinner with my husband and I start, my phone starts to, you know, do that lighting up vibrating thing. That means a lot of people are trying to reach you and they are the sources I've developed and they are narrating in real time for me. uh, And they will later give me the internal reports that document this, but they're narrating in real time for me what's happening at the white house. And it's a man who is suffering paranoid delusions um, after several very violent tours of battle in Iraq. He has uh, part of his toe, the bottom parts of his foot missing. So he walks with a limp. But in 29 seconds, Omar Gonzalez is able to get from the sidewalk of the street outside the White House on the North Grounds into the White House. He gets past, you know, some would say six, some would say 10 rings of security that are all supposed to be overlapping and duplicative precisely for the reason that none of them will all fail at the same time, but all of them do fail. A dog is not released. A radio isn't working. So a bunch of agents don't know what's happening. Um, An alarm box inside the White House doesn't tell the person who's at the North door that a jumper has, has come inside the building. So it's just amazing the number of rings of security that fail that night. Just everything. There's a group, there's a guy who is monitoring the front door, but he, because the service has had so much turnover in secret service officers who are burned out because they keep having to work six days a week instead of seven, they're leaving, they're fleeing the service and the service can't hire people fast enough and they're not getting regular training for their job. So this person is at the White House. He's had minimal training, and he doesn't know what to do if a jumper comes up to the door. And he's not sure what his use of force, you know, authority is. Should he shoot this guy? Should he stand back? He's not sure. So he lets him walk inside the White House. Right. So just to paint the picture, uh, Gonzalez jumps the wall. At that point, censors that should go off don't go off radio communicate radio communication no 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 no, i'm so sorry to interrupt that is a different jumper incident i apologize but no oh i Um, see no that's okay some a lot of things fail but those sensors and alarms are things that fail in a 2017 jump okay so the sensors the sensors didn't go off in a different jumping incidents but in this instance the dogs weren't released quickly enough because the, the radio communication um, failed. The, B- B- Gonzalez gets to the front door of the White House and an agent is there armed, but does not chooses not to use lethal force. And Gonzalez enters the White House, yes. overpa- I mean, o- yes. overpowers and, a female agent. Yep overpowers an agent who doesn't know that he's literally coming because her alarm box at her door has been turned off to reduce the annoyance of that alarm box to the white house and white house staff and the family. And so she doesn't have a warning to sort of double bolt the door, (laughs) Molly bar the door. And then he 
he bolts right over her. Um, and she reaches for her gun, but she grabs a flashlight instead, which is just sort of fascinating now um, to think of. And uh, the Secret Service agents who protect the president and his family, there are backup agents that night who have just said goodbye to the president and his family. They were on standby on the South Lawn when Marine One took off, taking President Obama and his two daughters up to Camp David. They're going to meet Michelle Obama, who's already there. So these agents are sort of standby agents to make sure they hand off the president and his daughters safely to the next team. And they are packing up their gear and they have no idea because they're on a different radio frequency that there's a jumper on the grounds. It's not until they go inside the building and they hear shouting that they actually realize something's going on and they run upstairs and help an officer who has finally brought Gonzalez down onto the floor in the cross hall. Let me ask you this, because this is what Ed and I were talking about this morning. You know, uh, there, you have another incident that you described with this Oscar Ortega Hernandez uh, in, in, uh, during the Obama years as well, where he believes he is the second coming of Jesus Christ. He, sh- he uh, pulls over, I think, on Constitutional Avenue uh, and shoots um, uh, nine times into, into the White House with a rifle. And um, the, it, it's, it's honestly, it's an embarrassment uh, of the way that the Secret Service responded on that. So you have this incident in Cartagena during the Obama years. You have the incident you just described of getting into the White House during the Obama years. And you have the Ortega Hernandez incident during the Obama years. Um, and they're coming off a really successful run from stopping two assassination attempts on Ford, the success they had with the Reagan assassination attempt, the protection that they provided presidents since then. And I think that the reason I'm kind of interested in this disparate treatment that seems to exist is what Ed and I were talking about this morning was how the Secret Service really reflects the culture of itself and of the administration. And sometimes those two can combine for something that's magical uh, when there is a serious-minded president who lets them do their job. And sometimes it combines for utter failure, which is whether it's the recklessness of the Kennedy administration, the recklessness of the Clinton administration, um, or the um, kind of narcissistic approach that Nixon and Trump had, that this was their personal security detail. And I'm just wondering where you, if, if you just kind of chalk these three incidents up during the Obama administration as, oh, those things just happened. Or if you think that because there's a conservative uh, bend that you write about in the culture of the Secret Service, whether or not there is um, something that was amiss between the requirements that were being asked of the Secret Service and the culture's dedication to protecting specifically the Obama family? That's a hard one. First off, let me start with the great premise, which is that the service um, often takes on the personality of the administration or the president. It takes on the personality because it takes on sort of the challenges and demands of that presidency. So, for example, during the Clinton era, there was 
a lot of stress over this issue of his constantly being under investigation, him, him definitely wanting privacy and, and even secrecy. And then the investigation sort of yanking the Secret Service agents into it, where uh, independent counsel, kind of star, wanted Secret Service agents to testify uh, before a grand jury about what they heard the president say and do. That made the service um, absorb and take on the, the challenges, if you will, or the, the anger of the Clinton presidency. In the case of, of President Obama, you know, the Secret Service as an agency writ large, like if you had to do the math, most of the Secret Service agents were not fans of President Obama. They did not like his policies. They did not like that he'd won election. Uh, but I don't think their security failures had anything to do with their dislike of him writ large. I think that their security failures were years in the making after 9-11. Their friendship uh, and, and mm, how shall I say it, their affection for President Trump was unusual because uh, it became very, very um, politicized inside an agency that's well known for its mantra, the people elect them, we just protect them. The service is not supposed to kind of cross this line of rooting for a particular president. Now, it's really awkward and really hard for them not to, right? Because what are they doing? They're trying to protect this one man. He has these, this agenda. His aides all want you to do X, Y, Z to help protect him in the mission that he has, which is to get reelected. In the case of President Trump, the agency writ large really liked him. They liked his agenda. They liked his philosophy. And they were rooting pretty openly for him, particularly on the president's detail, uh, to the point that um, you know, they were willing to not wear masks because the president didn't like them. The presidential detail agents were telling other agents and officers on duty on a specific assignment, like say Bedminster is one example, uh, when they visited, where they were securing the, his club for his visit there, they, presidential detail agents told those agents not to wear their masks. So they were putting themselves in harm and putting their colleagues in harm because they liked this president so much. And then finally, the most dramatic Members of the president's protective detail in a move that really troubled uh, both former and current Secret Service agents started rooting for President Trump to win re-election in a way that was unprecedented. They, um, they began on their personal social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, touting that the election had been rigged and that Democrats had stolen President Trump's rightful second term from him and questioning whether or not President Biden was legitimately elected. It got so bad that a Secret Service supervisor also um, put on her Facebook page that the folks who rioted and attacked the Capitol on January 6th to try to you know, stop the certification of the vote that day in Congress, that they were patriots. And that um, President Trump would win his second term. It would just be a matter of time. And that the folks who stormed the Capitol, by the way, people who took, you know, 
bats and flagpoles and bear spray to other law enforcement officers. Um, we're doing basically God's work in trying to protect the country from an illegitimate presidency. Well, and that's that's really why I ask, you know, kind of my long winded question. What what shocked me about your recount of Oscar Ortega Hernandez um, is that very quickly, here's a man who is Hispanic, uh, I'm assuming. Um, and what quickly happens is that the Secret Service in their internal communications is saying that it was two African-Americans. And, you know, when I read that, I was like, wait, what? How did we get there? And then the next follow-up is, and this was a drug deal where they were just shooting at each other and they just happened to be near the White House. And so <laughs> when we're talking about culture um, and you're talking about how they felt about Obama and then how they felt about Trump and what they started to post even, um, it just seems to me that this culture has lost its way. Well, I mean, keep in mind that racism, sexism, um, both of these features are uh, long lived in a lot of police forces and are harder to stamp out there. I mean, you don't have to look very far in our country in recent weeks, actually, to see that that's still unfortunately alive and well. And I, I guess I could give you comfort by saying I've interviewed so many absolutely um, lovely sort of philosopher kings who work for the Secret Service, really smart people who know that the best law enforcement is is a team of agents who are guardians of the of the public's well-being not you know gun-slaying security guards not gun-slaying attackers that their job is to protect the public and and in this case protect the president obviously but what's what's funny is how or, or ironic is how long it, it it has taken the secret service even in comparison to other law enforcement agencies to get over that um 1950s mindset of who can do the job. Keep in mind, a group of Secret Service agents who were Black sued the agency for racial discrimination. Why? Because for years they saw the white agents that they had trained get promoted above them. They saw agents with lower performance ratings getting the jobs that they had applied for three times and, not, and lost. So when they finally sued, um, much later actually than other black law enforcement agents sued their their particular institutions when they sued they were the object of scorn and derision the director at the time publicly criticized them for their lawsuit um they were blackballed from assignments they were shunned and you know it took multiple directors before secretary of homeland security Johnson J under, forgive me, J Johnson under President Obama ultimately decided to settle the case and pay those black agents the back pay they would have gotten had they won their rightful promotions. I want to circle back to what you said there earlier about um, the last election and how there was a lot of agents that sympathized with this, this argument that the election was still undecided in some way. Tell us how that affected the handoff of a full presidential level detail 
to the president-elect? Because I think that's a really important thing that that people should know about and how it impacted and potentially put the president-elect in in peril. Yeah. Well, you know, a great way to look at this is to compare it to uh, history, right? Let's start two ways. President Obama. Before President Obama was inaugurated, he had one of the highest threat assessments in history. He had the highest threat assessment for a candidate. But at that time, he was president-elect. Why? Because he was going to be the first black president in American history. And a lot of nationalist groups, a lot of extremist groups were chattering about the violent ways they were going to make sure that he never got into the White House, that he never got to see his inauguration day. And so, again, four times as many death threats against him than previous presidents or presidents-elect. This really worried the director at the time, and he asked for hundreds of millions of dollars to better harden and secure the White House as a result of this uptick in threats. So when you're president-elect, you are under a heightened threat. There are a lot of reasons why Joe Biden's transition team had reason to be freaked out. Uh, President Trump was basically barring his federal agencies from a normal, peaceful transition of power. He was not allowing the Biden transition team to come in. He was not allowing that formal declaration to be made, which is, here's the president, the presumptive president-elect. We all knew who that was, um, at least by November 7th, when uh, Joe Biden won the last big swing state, Pennsylvania. But President Trump resisted it. What happened as a result? Well, there, there was the bad governing issue, which is Biden's presumptive new administrative team couldn't get in to learn about what was going on with the coronavirus response. That's a, that, you need that leg up. They didn't get it. He didn't get to come into the Department of Defense or the intelligence agencies to really get a briefing on the national security and what the big hotspots were. You need that. He also wasn't allowed and afforded a president-elect detail. That was held back from him by the Secret Service because, again, the president hadn't made that determination, nor had his administration, that Biden was, in fact, going to be the next president. And I remember this horror that came over me because at first I thought, okay, well, he's not president yet. He didn't get the presidential, he didn't get the president elect detail. It's better than the one he has as a candidate, but is is it really that big a deal? Well, then I interviewed a couple people who used to be in charge of giving the president elect his security team. And they were horrified and they were Republicans personally. And one of them said to me, the president would just have to fire me today because I would give Biden everything he deserves. He's got a target on his back. It's bigger than it was before. This is what he deserves. This is a fire me, Mr. President moment. But the Secret Service didn't butt heads with Donald Trump. They followed his lead. They did what he wanted. Yeah, this goes back to, you know, where, where we sort of began this conversation about the culture, the culture of the administration or the personality, if you will, of the administration affecting the protective services um, that are assigned to, you know, I, I want to go back in history a little bit uh, to talk about that because, 
this book, aside from making news, you know, there's a lot of things that made news um, that came out of this book, primarily mm-hmm. around, you know, the, the Trump administration and, and the transition. I, I thought one of the fascinating segments of it was looking back at the 90s during the Clinton years, because, you know, keep me honest here and tell me if you think you see it differently. But I feel like the Clinton years was the like, the most contentious relationship between a, an administration and a secret service that that there ever was um talk about those years and what the dynamics were that led to that um and maybe begin <laughs> and maybe begin it would be helpful maybe describing the, how the relationship with the secret how george hw bush's administration was with the secret service because i think that leads into the contrast yeah that is a good idea the um there's never been a bigger love affair with the Secret Service, I'm sorry, with a president for the Secret Service than the one they had with George H.W. Bush. They just viewed him and his son, by the way, George W. Bush later, um, as incredibly upstanding uh, guys who also happened to have families and administration officials who were respectful of the role they played. And to be fair, George H.W. Bush had a long history of public service. I mean, almost his entire lifetime, I think from the time he was 17 as the youngest Navy pilot. So he had, he was really born and bred despite being, you know, one of the sort of royalty families of America, public service was in his DNA. He was a genuine war hero. Correct. And, you know, all the things he had done had trained him, I suppose, in that kind of respect for that service. And also he said yes to what the Secret Service wanted him to do. You know, when they wanted this level of protection around him somewhere, he deferred to them. When they said it's not safe to go here, he deferred to them. I don't think he was a pushover by any chance, I mean, by any stretch, but but he was much more reverential of their work. It didn't hurt that his wife was constantly making sure that all the coffee and leftover sandwiches from various events was sent out to the Secret Service agents in the snow outside their home or or in the rain um, outside a hotel where they might be staying. Mm-hmm. And she doted on the agents so so much so that she used to make the she used to lend them family mittens and hats if it was cold. Right. So all of that was for the good. And, and at Kenny Bunkport, the, the Bush retreat in Maine, they would ask the agents if they wanted to invite their children and wives to come hang out so they could have time with the family. Correct. Huge, huge, happy um, barbecues and fish camp sort of style fun uh, with the, the Bushes paying the bill for whatever summer picnic. You know, these families get deprived a lot of family time and and the bushes made sure that they had some and that it was pretty nice um they also arranged for their christmases to be delayed so the agents could spend time at home with their own families on christmas something agents really never got to do before then anyway the clintons arrive and the clintons know that the love affair between the agents and the president is pretty high and they're suspicious and worried. The director at the time is a very close friend of president Bush's uh, John McGaw and they're eyeing him very suspiciously and their suspicions are vindicated when at least they believe they're vindicated when 
a leak comes out not long after the Clintons have been in the White House. And the leak is that gossip that Mrs. Clinton threw a lamp at her husband in an argument. Whether it was true or not, I don't know. All I know is the leak did happen. And she believed it was the Secret Service. She banished them to the second floor down to the first floor, away from the second floor of the residence. And that troubled the agents, um, not just because it was a little bit of like insulting, we don't trust you, but also because you push the agents further away, you're getting in the way of them being able to accomplish their mission. They want to be at arm's reach for a reason, and that is faster reaction, ability to remove and cover and evacuate the president and his family or anyone else they protect. It goes right back to that moment with Clint Hill on the back of a limousine, unable to reach the president in time to literally give his own life for the president. So they want to be close and being banished further away just reduces their ability to do the mission. That reaches a feverish uh, boil when President Clinton is under investigation for what we now know was his romantic affair with a White House intern. And he's under investigation and fearful of what the agents will be able to say uh, when the independent counsel calls for them to testify before the grand jury. The director goes to the Supreme Court to try to stop this from happening because that's how worried the director is that agents will not be able to do their job. If they're forced to reveal what they hear at the shoulder of the president, no president is going to have them at their shoulder. I can't help but think that the tone was set, even going back to when Clinton was running, because I think if you made another piece of news in this book, when you reveal by word of of a Secret Service officer protecting him um, at the time he was running, that even after he had beat back the the terrible Jennifer Flowers scandal, he was still running around with women, meeting women at the YMCA on, on his jogs, and the Secret Service was looking the other way. And I think it's important to say, because you say so in the book, that you've reached out to a Clinton spokesman who denied that this ever happened. Yeah. But, but Secret Service agents have have said, according to your reporting, Secret Service agents said that Bill Clinton was philandering all along. You know, they don't know what happened. The agents who showed up in Little Rock, right, they, they have a job. They've worked hard to become Secret Service agents. They have trained very specifically for this new and very, I would say, you know, prestigious assignment, which is protecting a presidential nominee. At that moment, Bill Clinton is on his way to becoming the president. And if you're going to be protecting him on his way to the election and likely inauguration, you're probably going to end up on the president's detail or you have a chance to. So they've trained and trained for this assignment, but they're asked to put their training aside when they arrive at the YMCA in Little Rock. A supervisor tells some of the younger agents who've arrived, we're not going inside the Y. And the Agents ask why, you know, the president, you know, the the candidate, forgive me, the presidential nominee is in there and they're told, well, you know, he jogs here and everything, but we're not going in there. We're not allowed to. And the agents know that's not kosher. They know that's not their training. You're either screening people that get access to the candidate and president, or you are in the room protecting him from those individuals. And in this case, neither is happening. 
And the supervisors finally says, just drop it, you know, drop it. He's in there meeting women. And the agents are upset, but they're not upset about the embarrassment that this might be for the politician. They're not embarrassed. They're not upset because, oh my gosh, you know, there's philandering. They're upset because you've taken away their tools for doing the job now. You, they're responsible for the life on the other side of the door, but they can't go through it. And they can't control what's happening on the other side. And that pisses them off. Yeah. And I think, you know, I can understand how complicated the dynamics would be in then the Clinton administration, because now you have a president who, you know, wants to, quote, take um, off the record movements, um, as they call it, yep. might be a euphemism. Mm-hmm. For, for for meeting women and um, give a first lady who understandably for things we can't, we don't know the dynamics of a marriage, but you could imagine a scenario where there's been problems before and she's very protective and she's very, um, she doesn't want to be humiliated and they have all these people who are strangers in your life and the people leaking to the press. I, I can imagine I almost understand them not wanting to have secret service around or trying to figure out a way to not have it be as intense. And so it leads me to ask the question, how much power does the president have to override security procedures? I mean, it seems to me, as I was reading the book, I was thinking to myself, shouldn't, shouldn't this be, shouldn't there be certain institutional imperatives that exist that the protectee, given that they're a public servant and it's a matter of, public concern, that person's well-being and the family's well-being, that they shouldn't have a choice in certain instances. You know, I think it would make their lives a lot easier and it would make this book a lot less interesting if they did have a policy that they followed consistently. But it's that awkward dance again. You know, there, I have seen and reported on and I have learned about directors and agents who put their foot down and said, no, we're not doing this. And I have seen and reported and learned about instances where agents and directors should have put their foot down. I mean, agents still talk about the time that the White House insisted that President George W. Bush be allowed to sort of show, you know, mission accomplished by landing a fighter jet on an aircraft carrier. You know how many people have died in a fighter jet? landing on an aircraft carrier that they didn't catch the wire in time. It's like agents still say to this day, somebody should have put their foot down and stopped that sort of photo op. It was so unnecessary. Yeah. You know, thank goodness he didn't die, but thank goodness the fighter pilot really knew his stuff. Um, I I think we all remember that. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like this stuff behind the curtain that agents you know, remark upon because they know what the political optics arguments are, but they know what the secret service responsibilities and duties are. And it would be nice if there was a clear cut ability, but it ultimately rests with the individual agent, the head of the detail and the director to be firm enough to say no. And it's hard to say no. Um, to the commander in chief. And it's hard to say no 
to a screaming chief of staff who says, you know, you guys want to put the, my guy in a bubble. He'll never get reelected. Mm-hmm. What did John F. Kennedy say? I couldn't get a lo- elected dog catcher if I did everything you guys said. So I have, I, I have one last story I'd like you to tell. And I think it, I think it matters because it's, it's a good reminder that, you know, these anonymous people that we see sometimes on TV or on the, on, 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 uh, at these events, you know, have real lives and are real people and they have families that care about them. I want you to talk about what happened with Jerry Parr's wife the day Reagan was shot. Oh, oh, it's such a sweet story and so sad. You can, like, I get chills thinking about this because I know that corner so well in Washington. Yeah. Uh, Connecticut Avenue in Florida um, is where the Hilton is, the Washington Hilton. And it's where Reagan on that day in March, just, you know, what, like seven or eight weeks into his presidency is coming out of a speech that he's given, not the best speech of his career uh, and not the most excited and, and warm audience, but he's leaving from talking to this labor union and he's got, I don't know, maybe about nine yards, eight yards to cross to get into the limo from an sort of not underground, but subterranean in a way, staircase and, and hallway. And as he comes out, there's a diamond formation around him, meaning his detail leader and three other detail members are in locations to prevent anybody from having a clear shot at him in a diamond around his body. And Jerry Parr's uh, sort of towards his, I want to say, sort of towards his left shoulder. Sorry, his right shoulder. Um, Hinkley gets off, um, is, is in a area that hasn't been screened that's the huge mistake the service makes that day he finds a way to slip in among a group of tv cameramen who are trying to get the oncoming film uh of the president the new president coming out of the building and going into his limo but hinkley is among them and he has a weapon and in 1.6 seconds he's able to shoot six times the sound of the first shot you know we've talked about Many times, Tim McCarthy throws up his chest and his arms, kind of like a puff dragon, and takes the incoming bullets. Uh, Tim, Jerry Ma- Paul- Tim McCarthy being one of the Secret Service officers on duty that day. Yes, and a like a personal, a personification, if you don't mind me saying, of Jim Rowley, director Jim Rowley's rebuild of the agency, and of Stuart Knights, another director of his insistence on this continual drilling in attack on the principal training. He does exactly what they're trained to do uh, without a flinch, without a pause. Jerry Parr also without a flinch, without a pause, hair trigger reaction is to put his arm on Reagan's shoulder and shove him as fast as he can, maybe another two steps into the baseboards, <laughs> the the bottom of the back seat of the limousine. He pushes him so hard and so fast that Reagan's whole body doesn't make it in, but he, he thinks Reagan complains later. He thinks that Parr has broken his rib and behind him, Ray Shattuck, another agent in the diamond folds up Parr and Reagan's legs so he can shove the limo door closed. He doesn't even care if he breaks their legs. He just wants to close the door so they can flee. And, um, Drew Unruh, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. He is the driver and he is thinking to himself, I hope I don't run over Timmy. 
because all he saw was Agent Tim McCarthy fall. And now he has to speed out of the driveway and he can't wait. He just has to go. And he thinks he's going to run over the agent. Luckily, he doesn't. Across the street, Carolyn Parr has come out with a group of other people to watch the president's exit from the building and just wave, just just as everybody does in Washington from time to time. Wave at the motorcade as it passes. Wave at the president as he goes to St. John's Church. If you're around D.C. and he happens to be going past, people wave. She knew he was going to be there because she knew her husband was going to be there. But what she doesn't know is whether her husband has been shot. She just knows he's not visible anymore. And she's screaming out to another agent. Uh, and I'm going to forget his last name, but his first name's Bob. And I remember him because he's the person who pulls an Uzi, basically what looks like pulls an Uzi out of his pant leg. Which we, um, all, re- which we all remember from the footage. <laughs> Yes, he is the one with the Uzi against the wall, like ready to take on whatever military attack is incoming, because that's what the service thinks. Go to what is the worst possible thing. There are agents everywhere clambering to capture and pull down Hinkley, and they do that within seconds. And she comes over and laying on the ground, it should be added, bleeding is the press secretary, Jim Brady, a DC police officer and McCarthy. That's right. They're all on the ground. And the, the person who is hurt the most is Brady. There um, is blood coming from his head. And, you know, another thing about the personal is, and I interviewed him for this book, the advance staffer from that site, just as there's an advance, meaning the security preparation for every visit, every trip on the secret service side, There's somebody on the White House team or political team who's also doing advanced preparation for how this event's going to unfold. And the advanced staffer for the White House that day is the first person to reach Brady, get out his handkerchief and try to sort of staunch the bleeding. Uh, And it's such a painful thing to think you helped plan this event and, and here's where you are now. Anyway, Carolyn Parr is screaming, you know, where's my husband? Where's my husband? And Bob with the Uzi tells her she's with the man. He's with the man. He's with the man. He's in the limo. He's on his way. So she still doesn't know um, if he's safe or not, but she knows he's in a limo speeding towards uh, presumably the White House. Actually, Jerry Parr is brilliant that day. In addition to shoving the president as quickly as he can into safe cover, He also has another kind of training, which is about sort of emergency 10-minute medicine, like ER doctors would uh, in the field. He's assessing, is there any real damage to President Reagan right now? He cannot find any blood on his shirt, on his chest, on his legs. He's feeling for wetness. He's trying to figure out, is there anything here that I got to worry about? Reagan is complaining that it's hard for him to breathe. And Parr realizes while they're they're in the car, again, going pretty dang fast down Connecticut Avenue towards the White House, realizes that he has some pink kind of spittle, kind of oxygenated blood. And when he sees that, he thinks something's wrong that I can't see. And he redirects the agent, who's the driver, to George Washington University Hospital. There is no doubt that that decision you know, saves Reagan's life. In addition to the four heroic things that happened before that moment, 
when they get there, um, the surgeon realizes that he's actually, President Reagan has actually been hit by a bullet that ricocheted around in the well of the back door of the limo. And Jerry Parr's wife, after witnessing this horrendous event, not knowing if her husband's okay, comes home and discovers yeah. his bulletproof vest. Yeah. She finds his vest hanging in the sort of the back entryway to their garage of their house and, you know, breaks down crying, which is interesting. It just, just kills me because it ties perfectly to a moment that happens maybe 18 hours later after Reagan has his surgery and is on the mend. They did find the devastator bullet in the back side of his lung. Parr is relieved of duty. You know, he's just been involved in a shooting. They can't have him protecting the president that moment. He's going to be the subject of an investigation, not because he did anything wrong, just because it's a huge, big deal. And his deputy in charge of the detail, Bob DeProspero, takes over and stands at the president's bed, I don't know, 18, 19 hours, stays there, stays there, stays there. And when Reagan awakes, he turns and sees Bob, probably the first person he sees. And Bob DeProspero looks at him and nods and Reagan says, I will wear the bulletproof vest whenever you tell me, Bobby because Reagan had resisted wearing it. It's too hot, makes him sweat, it's heavy, it's awkward, and he really didn't want to wear it. Um, would have been different if he had. Yeah. Well, I, I, wanted to, I wanted that story to be told because I think you know there's a lot to criticize and there's a lot that we want to see done differently. But you know, it's a good reminder that, um, I mean, these are just people. They're just people, you know, they leave the house, they've got wives, they have husbands. In the case of female officers, they have um, children and it's literally their work to trade their life for someone else's. And it's, it's remarkable. It is. It is. It's amazing. As I say, often these people really blow me away. Some of the people I've met, I think I could never do what they do. I, I would wilt. Not only can I not give my life and be, I'd be too scared. Um, I can't do the, the incredible drudgery they do too. Mm -hmm. Like they have to be brave all the time and then they just have to soldier on through so much. And, and most of it is hurry up, be bored, stay vigilant when you're bored and tired. Um, Stand stand in a stairwell for five hours (laughs) and that's it. Yep. I want to I want to wrap up here on what your prescription is. Um, you know, I, I was so struck by the transition that existed when, when Obama is a candidate, and as you said, he had the most threats of any presidential candidate in the history of our country. And ten months before he would really be um, entitled to protection, Michael Chertoff, with with George W. Bush's administration says, because Dick Durbin is kind of pushing for this, says, yeah, we need to give him protection. And he does. And so there you see this beautiful um, culture of what the country should stand for, what are the, the, the potential peaceful transfer of power should look like. And then you come to this latest, this epilogue in your book, which was the part that had me the most riled. 
And I, I'm curious, you know, D- Director Murray, how Director Murray still has a job is absolutely beyond me. Maybe you feel differently. But to not provide President, President-elect President Biden with the detail that protects the entire country from chaos um, is an absolute dereliction of, of his duty. And I just wonder if the if you believe that ultimately the Secret Service is going to have to get out of the business of only promoting from within. And they're going to have to separate themselves from the political arm that they seem to be becoming. And they're going to have to professionalize more. I'm curious if you see it the same way. It's a tough question you ask. It's the right question. I sound like, you know, Dick Nixon, uh, fair question, tough question. But no, it's just hard for me to, as a reporter, give um, an answer to your first question, because that's really for politicians to decide. I'll tell you what agents and officers who are worried about the service tell me. They say that, you know, while they may have supported the agenda of Donald Trump, they feel that he weakened and almost infantilized the agency, made it uh, his whipping boy. And they were willing whipping boys, right? They were willing to go along and do with, do what he asked, including not protecting President-elect Biden. Now, what if he had been President-elect Kamala Harris, you know, a woman of color? Let's, let's think about what the threats against her might have been not taking away any of the threats that are against any president-elect, including a white Irishman like Joe Biden. There is no question in my mind that agents and officers are appalled at the politicization that the agency reached during this last presidency. Appalled. And, And I know that because I know the political persuasions of the people I've interviewed. I know where they stand on a host of things, including President Trump's agenda. And many of them that were huge supporters of his find this really troubling, that the agency has to be above this. Now, maybe it was they absorbed the, the person, just as you described earlier. They, they absorbed the person too, too well, um, which is that governing wasn't important, rules weren't important, tradition and norms weren't important. What was important was optics. What was important was his claim to power and, and his quest to, to hold on to it. Maybe they absorbed his challenge too well. But something has to happen whereby the service breaks its resistance to seeing its own vulnerabilities. I get why people want to look tough in the national security sphere and not reveal weakness. But in this case, we can't keep concealing it because it matters too much. And if I could channel something that agents have told me to President Biden, if President Biden was here, I would say, do you know that agents want you to stop thinking about this as a protection service for you and start thinking about rebuilding this agency of public servants who need the tools they don't currently have to do the job. Treat them like the public servants in the Customs and Border Patrol. Treat them like the public servants in the TSA. Give them the jobs, give them the equipment they need for their job, whether that's staffing, whether that's a strategic mission, refresh, whether that is taking some responsibilities off their plate, which is something agents really think is important. Adding technology, adding an upgrade, bringing them in, into the 21st century and stop worrying about whether or not they are 
you know, the Praetor- they look like the Praetorian Guard for you personally. This brings us back to the thing you all mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, the resistance, the reluctance on the part of presidents to be protected. Uh, unfortunately, the democracy needs this team more than you need as president, the optics of seeming super strong and super everyman. We need the democracy protected. And this is a team that's vital to making that true. How has the agency responded to your book? And is there a difference the way that that they've responded publicly versus how agents have responded privately? (laughs) Oh, there's always a difference. (laughs) Um, Publicly, the director has said that this is a rehash of old events from which the service has improved and evolved and that there's, you know, the the message is essentially nothing to see here. Uh, Of course, you know, from reading my book that there are events in here that are described that are just a few months old. So it's hardly just a rehash. I will say it is a history though. And it, it charts an arc of the agency's worst trauma, its rebuilding, its vindication, and then it's slow slide. Uh, because people haven't been paying attention and giving the Secret Service what it deserves. Privately, uh, I guess my my most professionally rewarding moment was when a group of agents who had refused to talk to me, um, you know, feeling that my work generally writes about the things that don't go well in the service. Um, relayed through a friend of theirs that um, they feel like I did them a service. They feel like I, I shared some important truths about the agency and that they hope people will pay attention. The book is Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Carolinic, absolutely fantastic book. Great research. You're just one heck of a reporter and a heck of a writer. So thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Ed and Perry, thanks for the great questions. Great. Thank you. Thank you. You know, so, uh, Ed, that was uh, a fantastic conversation. I felt that the book was surprisingly, um, I just didn't think that I would find it to be such a page turner. And it really is because the moments that you're talking about are these huge historical moments that we think we know something about, but when you see it through the lens of the Secret Service, you you get a behind-the-scenes look that I'd never contemplated even before. No, it's fascinating, and I I, I you know I, I want to emphasize that you know I I didn't want this conversation to take the tenor of beating up on the Secret Service um, because the book really goes through the history and there's a lot to be concerned with legitimately, but of course you know, this is really difficult, hard work. And these are just people and they have their, their biases and there's office politics and it's very complicated. I, I just, the takeaways I have, the big ones that stick in my mind, the Obama years, that portion of the book, I just imagine Michelle Obama holding her breath for a decade. I mean, the number of threats, the, the behavior in Cartagena, the failure at the wall, with Gonzalez getting to the door, you know, the shootings uh, from the street at, at the white house while his daughters were there. And I can only imagine just 
the utter terror of sending your two young children to school under protection of armed guards every day and knowing that it's necessary. Yeah, that's right. And, and to know the, the whole time that there's a, a large group of these Secret Service agents that uh, aren't pleased that you're holding the office. I think that's the part that, that disturbs me the most is well, I, yeah. I, I feel like, you know, I guess I just thought that the Secret Service would be so much better at being apolitical than the FBI. And it's the exact opposite. I think it's probably fair to say it's a mixture, but yeah, I mean, they need to carry out their duty without um, taking their own political preferences into account. I think for the most part, they do. I mean, let's not forget that President Obama and his family today are alive and no one has been, no one's very true. No one was threatened more than he was. And my my Um, claim though, Ed, isn't that there's unanimity that, that, that uh, as an entire agency, but, but the point is that the FBI, you can't find an example where the FBI had said, well, we're simply not going to apply the law. And right. to not provide protection to President-elect Biden is just beyond the pale. That's the problem, you know, which we got into. You know, there should be an institutional imperative here. It shouldn't be anyone's choice. It shouldn't have been the Trump administration's choice to direct the Secret Service to up the President-elect's protection detail. It shouldn't have been Obama's to decide for Trump coming in. It shouldn't have been Bush's for decide for, for, for Obama. Uh, in the, that case, as you pointed out, the Bush administration actually provided Obama with protection much earlier than anyone had ever, ever, ever had as a, as a candidate because of the additional threats. They went beyond what they needed to do. The other thing that was a big takeaway for me was just how toxic things were during the Clinton years. I mean, we didn't talk about it with her when, when she was on, but there's a story in the book where an agent responsible for Chelsea Clinton to take her to school comes upstairs and she's on the phone with a friend and Chelsea Clinton says to her friend, I have to go. The pigs are here. And the agent is like, you know, listen, Miss Clinton, I want to tell you that my job is to stand between you and your family and a bullet. And do you understand that? He didn't appreciate the comment. And she allegedly said to him, uh, well, that's what my mother and father call you. You know, there's a lot of parallels between the Clinton presidency and their relationship with the Secret Service and to some extent JFK because the degree to which both those presidents wanted what's described in the book as off-the-record movements, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, whatever that might have been about, we can imagine. And it's interesting how much there was a parallel between Nixon and Trump. Yeah, again, I, I think that you see that every organization comes to the fork in the road of whether or not they have good governance. Right. And what you're seeing here is that the governance of the Secret Service is impaired because there's too much mobility for them to take on the personality of the administration. And that doesn't serve anyone well. That's right. Well, this is the head and the heart. You can. Follow us or subscribe on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. All those places? All those places. Wherever and follow us on Twitter. We're at head underscore heart underscore pod. Let us know what you think. And don't forget to leave us a rating. Give us a review. Uh, if you're lucky, we'll tweet out that review, which we like to do. And this episode, like all episodes, has been produced by Casey Morris. Thanks. Everybody.